Uh, if you have a copy of the Bible, you can open up near the very beginning to the end of Genesis chapter 2. We're going to finish out that chapter this morning uh, here in just a moment. We're going to look at the last two verses of the second chapter of the Bible. Uh, I want to say a special welcome to you if you're a guest with us, uh, especially if you live here locally. We're grateful that you're here with us, and we'd love to meet you, get to know you a little bit. Uh, one way you could help us do that is you could fill out what we call a connection card. It's really simple. You could do it digitally. You could follow that QR code that's on the back of the program and you could fill it out digitally if you'd like to do it that way or if you just want to fill it out pen and paper on the back of the program on the back side the bottom uh, you can fill it out take it with you out in the lobby later and take a left and some folks will be at a counter there who'd love to meet you um, we'd love either way you fill it out to follow up with you get to know you better and if you are new brand new this morning or new-ish to our church uh, next Sunday night we're having what we call coffee with the pastors we do this periodically where we just have treats and coffee uh, on Sunday night at six o'clock we're gonna do that next Sunday so if you want to come back for that. It would be a chance informally to get to meet you, let you ask questions, help us get to know you a bit, see how you may be able potentially to even be connected here in the life of CCC. Uh, all right. I trust that you have found uh, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, this text is very evidently about marriage. And as I've been contemplating this subject this week, I was reminded, not in a grumpy old man type of way, but I, I've been reminded that there is a great deal of confusion around the subject of marriage in our culture today. Uh, and I don't think America's alone in that. I think it's a widespread confusion. I was thinking of some of the ways uh, that we're confused about marriage, some of the ways we see that expressed in our culture, and maybe even in our own lives. And I wanted to mention some of those here at the beginning just to help us see our need for this text, our need to be taught by God about this. So some examples of confusion and uh, dysfunction, I would say, with marriage. And one example is that marriage is being delayed often in our culture. Uh, older and older people are waiting to get married, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think we have started to view marriage, as I heard one person say, we're starting to view it as a capstone experience or something to enter into once you've reached maturity. Uh, it's like a reward for having reached maturity as opposed to seeing it as a foundation stone, as something more foundational upon which maturity can be established. So marriage is being delayed. Often marriage is just being avoided altogether, uh, and I don't mean by that that it's being avoided by people who are content with singleness and celibacy but even people who want intimacy of relationship with the opposite sex are uh, avoiding marriage they want the benefits of being married without the responsibilities that come with marriage so marriage is being avoided uh, marriage is being abandoned often. Uh, once people are married, sometimes it's being quickly abandoned for reasons uh, people are entering into separation or eventual divorce for reasons that aren't always biblical, that are, are more driven by intuition or feeling than by the scriptures. Uh, divorce rates are at an incredibly high rate and remain so. And people uh, enter into divorce for uh, reasons that, that are not biblical. And they, it's sometimes viewed as just an incredibly, ver incredibly painful version of breaking up. Uh, another way, uh, maybe more fundamental and maybe more forward in our minds, marriage is being distorted or confused, is that it's being redefined or attempting to be redefined in our culture. It was just eight years or so ago that the Supreme Court of our nation ruled in Obergefell versus Hodges uh, that same-sex couples' right to be married needs to be respected by all 50 states. So marriage is being delayed, avoided, abandoned, redefined. But lest any of us who are in 
same sex, or, or heterosexual, excuse me, heterosexual monogamous marriages, lest we look down our nose at everybody else and think that they are the ones who are, are getting marriage wrong. I think we need to look in the mirror. Uh, we who are married uh, to our spouses, maybe have been for years, we need to look in the mirror ourselves and acknowledge, uh, which I appreciate Will's confession even of this this morning, we need to acknowledge that even within our marriages, there is dysfunction. There's sinfulness present even in monogamous heterosexual marriages. One of my uh, seminary professors said it this way in a kind of cheeky way. He said, just because we don't have two grooms or two brides in front of us, that doesn't mean we've been holding to biblical marriage. I think often as husbands or wives, we ignore our spouses, we mistreat them, we take them for granted, we manipulate them. Uh, We have often, even within the church, lost sight of the nature of marriage, the beauty of it, the significance of it, and how it's supposed to be lived. And so some people think in light of all this confusion that what we need is a return to what they would consider like a golden age of the 1950s or something like that. Uh, Like leave it to beaver, families like that. Um, But what we need more than that, uh, much more fundamentally than that, is a return back to the created order of the Garden of Eden. The 1950s are not some golden age of marriage. Uh, The golden age of marriage was short-lived. It was in the Garden of Eden and that's where we're going to look today is to go back to the very beginning, see how God created marriage, why he created it, and I trust that the Lord will have much to speak to us, whether we're married or not, whether we're ever going to be married or not, there's much that we can learn and should learn from this text. And so we're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. We're going to round out chapter 2, and next Sunday, uh, Jordan Weddle actually gets the privilege of, uh, uh, Jake, Pastor Jake, sorry, Jordan is two Sundays from now. I don't want to alarm him. I see panic on his face right now. Uh, Pastor Jake is preaching the start of Genesis 3 uh, next Sunday, Um, but we're going to end chapter 2 this morning. If you've been with us the last few weeks as we keep going slowly through this book, uh, you saw that two Sundays ago when we were last in Genesis, uh, we were continuing this slow, chapter 2 is kind of like a slow motion recap of day 6 of creation where Moses in chapter one had kind of very quickly summarized days one through seven, even of creation and rest. Chapter two is like a slow down version of day six and parts of it, where he made man, then he made woman, presented her uh, to the man. Uh, When we were in that text last uh, two weeks ago, we saw that women are to be valued as indispensable, as complementary partners with men in the fulfillment of God's commission. Uh, uh, last week, when we, or two weeks ago, when we were in this, we saw some things about what I would say men and women more generally, as men and women, male and female. This morning, we're going to take a turn and look more specifically at husbands and wives, uh, not just generally at men and women, but uh, more specifically to husbands and wives. And so what we're going to read here, what I'm going to read for us, it's like this ever so brief, I don't know if you've paid attention to this before, it's like an ever so brief, it's really just one verse, this first verse, shift, and our, our author Moses, he's going to shift from narrating the story, like he's been doing, and like he's going to jump right back to doing, to narrating, he's going to jump out of that for one verse, and he's going to apply, he's going to shift from narrating to exhorting, to say, this is what I want you to feel. This is what I want you to do by hearing this. And this is a helpful reminder to us that never ever will you come across a biblical text where an author is only trying to narrate. 
right? There is no text of scripture where the author is just trying to tell a story. They're always trying to have an effect, always trying to teach us something through it. And Moses just becomes more explicit with it here in verse 24 and verse 25. And so I want to read these for us and then we'll walk back through this short text. But I trust the Lord will have much to say to us through it. So Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continued his record this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of it. I want to summarize uh, this message this way, uh, this short text. I summarize its significance, its meaning this way, is that God's design for marriage is a pattern to follow, not a prototype to modify or discard. That God's design for marriage is a pattern to follow. That it's not a prototype uh, to be modified, improved, uh, to be modified, or certainly not to be discarded. And so I want to start by showing in this text what I mean that God's design for marriage is a pattern for us to follow. What do, I, what do I mean by that, that it's a pattern to follow? I would note that verse 24 starts with a word that's important, right? Therefore. Uh, what Moses is doing here is he's, he's been telling the story of God making man and woman and God presenting the woman to the man. And now he's saying for this one moment, this one sentence, he's saying, this is the significance that has upon your life. This is what the, how this should affect the way that you live as an individual, as a society, this creation order of man and woman and God bringing the woman to the man, it should affect how you actually live. It's not just a story to remain a story in your mind. It's to affect, it's to set a pattern for how we live. It has enduring significance. Now I'll just remind us, Moses is writing this originally to the men and women of Israel who were wandering in the desert. And this story of Adam and Eve would have felt ancient even to them, right? Uh, it would have been long ago in the collective memory and even to them in the wilderness, Moses is saying that creation pattern of Adam and Eve has relevance for you and he would say the same thing to us today in 2023, that that ancient happening, that ancient creation of man and woman and husband and wife has enduring significance for us. And you see this throughout the scriptures. It's not even just Moses. Uh, you start and you get into the teachings of Jesus himself or the Apostle Paul, which we'll look at a little bit. And those brothers, uh, Jesus is far more than a brother, but those brothers, they turn to this very text as something that has enduring significance for their generation and the ones that follow. Uh, that marriage has been and will be the same from the beginning to the end. Mar marriage is not the product, as some try to argue, of some ancient civilizations, like to create order and structure and stability in our society. It was the creation of God in the very beginning, and it's supposed to be followed to the end. It's not a fluid concept. It's not an evolving idea. It's God's design that's supposed to be followed. Therefore, live this way. A question I want to note briefly that some of you may wonder here in verse 24 before we get into the meat of today's text. Is this command, this command in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Actually, I would ask it this way. Is that a command? Is that a universal command for all men? 
I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. Is that something every man should feel an obligation to do? That every woman should feel an obligation to pursue marriage? There are some in our day who are throughout history who would say, yes, this is a, a binding command upon all human beings unless providence hinders you to pursue marriage. But I would argue, and there's a reason I use the word pattern, uh, I would argue that this is a pattern, not a prescription. That it's a model, not a mandate, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, that, and we could talk about that if you'd like, but what was not good that we saw earlier in chapter 2 was that Adam was alone, not that he was single. Right? The problem wasn't that he was a bachelor, it was that he was in solitude. Right? And the way God answered that was in the provision of a wife. But uh, the problem was his aloneness, not his unmarriedness. And the scriptures speak very clearly to the significance, the dignity of singleness. You read through the scriptures, especially as you get to the New Testament, they speak in a way about singleness that the cultures around them would have thought was wild. Uh, that there was great significance and dignity in singleness. And so think of Jesus himself, right? God in the flesh. He did not marry a particular woman on earth. Yet he fully lived out God's commands, perfectly obeyed, perfectly lived a righteous life, right? So this cannot be a universal mandate upon every human being to marry, but it is a pattern to follow. If you are to enter into marriage, it's to be through the manner in which God created it. And so I want to spend the the rest of our time talking about two main fundamental features of marriage. If we're to follow this pattern, uh, what are the two main features of it that we see right here in this text? And we're going to use two headings that you may hear in weddings sometimes. If you grew up on King James, you probably heard these two rhyming words uh, together from this text. We're going to talk about leaving and cleaving. Uh, That's how the King James actually translates verse 24 it says therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and so we're going to look at those two ideas what does it mean to leave father and mother what does it mean to to cleave to a spouse and we'll see the relevance for us this day so first he says a man shall leave his father and his mother so what does he mean when he says that he shall leave his father and mother one fundamental thing that i think we could easily miss before we even think specifically what leaving means, is he is he's talking about willful choice, right? Leaving is something you choose to do, right? You could get kicked out, yes, but leaving is a choice. It's not, it's a, a volitional choice. It's not when we come to marriage and the description of it, we should not first and foremost think of emotional feelings. Right? But these are actions. These are willful choices to leave and to cleave. And that's important that, that marriage, I would say it this way, you can fall in love. You do not fall into marriage, right? Like uh, It doesn't just happen to you. You choose to do it. Uh, you leave and you cleave, right? And so he says that this man shall leave his father and mother. That cannot mean that we just abandon our father and mother, Right? I mean, Moses, who's writing this, is going to quickly record in Exodus the Ten Commandments, right? Where we have the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, right? And it was written to mostly married people. And so to leave them doesn't mean you just forget them or that you just peace out the rest of your life and never talk to them, don't think of them. It it does not mean that. It cannot mean that based on the rest of Scripture. Even in the days of Moses, generations would live together typically, right? They're wandering in tents when they were singing. It's not like you have your house, 
I have mine. Like they would have been living in close proximity to each other. But leaving is a choice. I would say it's more psychological and mental than it often is physical. Uh, that, that, that is a choice of how I view myself, how I view myself and my spouse now in relation to our parents. And I would say it's more about prioritizing. That would be a, a word that I would use to describe this. That leaving is about having a new prioritization of this person, this husband or wife in your life that maybe your parents, hopefully your parents used to have. Uh, from the beginning of your life onward, they have had that primary place in your life. But now he says to leave them uh, for the sake of taking on this new person as primary in your life. And this command, I think we lose the, the, the punch of it in our culture. This feels natural to us as Americans. Like, yep, I'm ready to leave. Like, I want to be on my own. I want to be independent. But in most cultures, this would have been a revolutionary idea to say this mother and father who you are to respect you are to honor you are to to treat with utmost regard you are to actually as you enter into marriage you're to leave them they're to start to take a back seat so to speak to your new husband or wife that would have been revolutionary and still is revolutionary in a lot of cultures today but it's about prioritizing your spouse that when you receive a husband or wife when you enter into marriage you are not just adding that person to the constellation of relationships in your life right it's not that every other relationship just stays the same and now you just add this person into the mix they are to take a priority above all other human relationships that they are to to be the one that you think about that you orient your life around more than any other human being and I think it's significant that this is mentioned first he says, he shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That order is important. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who some of you know, uh, passed away some years ago, but he said that leaving enables cleaving. That if you don't truly leave the authority or, or mentally detach yourself in some ways from the authority and the directives of your mom and dad, you will never actually deeply connect to your spouse the way that you're supposed to. There's an author, Tim Challies, who I, I came across an article that he wrote about this, uh, where he said, and I, if you know me, I know very little about plants and flowers and things like that. I'm an indoors person. Uh, but he was writing about some plants and using them as an illustration of this concept of leaving father and mother. And what he said was he wants his children to leave and cleave like a strawberry I thought, what in the world does that mean? Uh, but he explained it. I want to explain it to you because I thought it was helpful. He was talking about how plants reproduce. Uh, and if you're a biology major or whatever, you could correct me afterwards if I'm wrong about these things. But he was contrasting some of these. He talked about how wildflowers, how they propagate, how their baby uh, flowers grow is that often their seeds will blow like then sometimes they'll get a little bit of distance even if the wind is strong and then those seeds hopefully go into the ground and then they grow pretty much independent of that mother plant uh, that they have their own roots that they just grow on their own however close or far that they get but they're very independent of each other and then he contrasted that with flowers like irises are apparently this way or he mentioned hosta plants uh, that are kind of like this that there are some other other plants that instead of seeds falling at a distance what the how these baby flowers grow or plants grow is that they grow that's essentially like the flower just splits and then from that same root base new flowers grow that the new blooms grow up and so contrasted with wildflowers they're connected at the root they are fundamentally connected and gardeners have to come and like actually separate them if they're going to grow into fully separate plants and he said but strawberries 
this is where the illustration comes in. Strawberries, he said, and I'm sure there's other plants that grow like this, that they, with their roots, will send out runners. They'll send out, or a shoot will grow out from them, and it'll go out a ways, and then from there, this new plant will, will plant down its own roots, where there's still a connection between the parent plant, but it starts to form its own roots and grow as a plant that could survive on its own, that will survive, hopefully, on its own. And he, he used it as an illustration of, I, he wanted his kids to be like a strawberry plant. That he knew there's an important connection between him and them. That there's this runner that goes from him and his wife to their children. But he, he wanted to acknowledge even with young children that they need to become their own person. And that if the Lord has them be married, they need to become their own entity that has their own roots. And that aren't dependent on me for sustenance. That aren't dependent on me for their life. And so he said he wanted his children to leave and cleave like a strawberry and I, want, I thought that was a wonderful illustration. I want to apply uh, a couple things to your life where you may be related to marriage. I know we all come in different states, different places of life when it comes to relationships. But I want to give a couple words of application for this concept of leaving. Because it's a fundamental part of marriage if we're going to understand it rightly. First, a word to you if you are dating or if you're engaged maybe soon to be married. A few things that I want to note for you. One is that I would encourage you to not pretend that you are married until you are married. Like you are not yet husband and wife. Like there should be a respect still of your parents and their authority in your life, even as you inch closer to that potential of getting married. And I would encourage you to not be quick to devalue parental counsel. Uh, to not just discard it, to not ignore it, to not close your ears to your own parents or to your potential in-laws, as hard as that may be. Uh, to not pretend that you are married and, and not act as if you're married until you are. Don't be too quick to claim that independence and that newness of relationship. And if there's sometimes, as there is, a hesitation for them to bless your relationship, to give their approval to it, I would encourage you to not immediately buck against it to not just write them off as they just don't get it or they don't understand. And don't, don't just buck against them, but seek wise counsel uh, from brothers or sisters in the church, people you respect who could help you navigate this and maybe think about things you haven't thought about before or, or help you maybe sometimes need to make that hard decision to, to disregard, to go against their counsel because they are not binding over you as an adult, but they should be respected. And that what we should always strive for if we're moving toward marriage is that there would be a humble transfer of allegiance, right? Not just a defiant casting off of authority, right? That there should be a humble transfer of allegiance to a new partner, a new, uh, a new most important person in my life. Another thing to dating and engaged couples, as you get closer to married life, hopefully a, a wise pastor or counselor will help you do this. It's important for you to discuss your family of origin and assumptions you're entering into married life with because you're going to carry all that stuff into this new entity. And it's important to not have those ties so strong, those assumptions so strong that how we did it when I grew up must be how we do it now. But talk together of what life is going to look like as husband and wife. Much could be, more could be said to you if you're dating or engaged. But another word, if you are a married person in the room, like myself, uh, many of us in this room are currently married. A few things I would ask you to think about under this heading of leaving is, are you sufficiently prioritizing your husband or wife? 
Like, have you adequately left your parents, yes, but other relationships that are in your life and given the priority to your spouse that he or she deserves? Are they the foremost human relationship in your life? Are they at the top of your decision-making grid? Are the matrix you run things through, are they at the top? Do you, a way I could ask it too is, do you say no to other people for the sake of your spouse? Or do you say no to your spouse for the sake of other people? Which do you do more often? And to think, have I truly left the other relationships in my life to prioritize my husband or wife? To those in the room that have children, a few things that I would want to, to ask you or encourage you to think about. One, if you have younger children who are not yet married, I'd encourage you, and I want to do this myself, to teach your children as they grow up, as they contemplate potentially getting married themselves, to teach them that if they enter into marriage, you want them to become one with that spouse, that you want them to leave your authority. Uh, Not that you want to hasten that day that you're just glad to see them go, but you want them to know, I will celebrate that. Like, I want that for you. As hard as that may be for me as a parent, I want you to prioritize the spouse that the Lord may give to you. But some of you in the room, you have children who are married. Uh, You're not on the the child side of this equation, but you're on the parent side of it. And I, I would just want you to think from this text, if you are applying this in your own life with your children, Have you allowed your married child to forge an identity with their husband or wife? Have you allowed that or have you been a hindrance to that? Have you allowed them to form that independence with their husband or their wife? And if that is not going well, it could be that it's your fault, right? And that that you're overbearing and you ask things too much and you try to give advice too much and maybe you need to scale back. Or it could be that your child is the one at fault. It's probably both. But it could be that they're at fault and they're too quick to seek your input. They're, they're coming asking you for input. They're coming asking you for help all the time. And perhaps you as a parent need to lovingly serve them by saying, go talk to her. Like, go talk to him. Like, you all need to figure that out together. I'm not going to jump in and fix this. And so be wise about how you relate how you teach your children how you relate to them if they are married and the last word of application would just be to those of you in the room maybe you are not married but you have married friends which I trust would be all of us is to evaluate under this heading am I maybe unintentionally rivaling my friend's spouse Am I maybe unintentionally taking up a place in how I spend time with them, the the amount of investment, the bond that I have with them that should be their husbands or wives? And if that's true, then consider how you may be able to scale back to encourage them to more deeply connect with their husband or wife. And so that's the first facet of marriage is leaving. I'm going to have to move much quicker on this. Uh, The second heading is cleaving, to, if we use the King James language, cleaving to our husband or our wife that the Lord has given to us. So he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Cleave is an interesting word in English. I was thinking about this even just this morning. Uh, You know what a meat cleaver is, right? It's that big old knife that you just chop down uh, and, and just cut meat right in half with. Cleave can mean to sever, like to, to cut apart, like clean break. But cleave 
interestingly, can also mean the exact opposite of that in our weird English language where you actually have this sticking that's close together, where you have this bond that's like you're glued together with this thing. So weirdly, cleave means both. When I'm using it, I'm meaning that second meaning, that there's, there's this bond, there's this affinity, this connection with this person that is deep. So he says that a husband is to hold fast to his wife, to cleave to his wife. And by the way, all the things that are said of the man, I think, are implied for the woman as well, uh, that, that she should respond likewise. But a few things that I think we can see under this heading of that he's to hold fast, that he's to cleave to his wife, and I'll have to mention these briefly, but one, I can't preach this message without at least mentioning this, is that you see here in this fundamental text about marriage that marriage is to be uh, between one man and one woman. Right? In our day and age, we need to say that and articulate that. Language here is not just of two people. Right? It's a man and a woman. Even the generation before, there's father and mother. And so it's fundamental, this first text of the scriptures and it's assumed throughout the Bible is that marriage is a heterosexual relationship. Right? That it's a man and a woman. This is the paradigm that the scriptures use. As we get deeper into the law, homosexual acts are forbidden. And so certainly homosexual marriage would be unfathomable. It wouldn't even be a thing that would have registered in people's minds as a possibility. So it's to be heterosexual. But what you see more fundamentally in this text is that marriage is to be marked by fidelity. It's to be marked by faithfulness to this person, right? That's part of what holding fast to a husband or wife is that you are making a commitment of loyalty to this person, of faithfulness to this person. It's not just that you enjoy their presence, like sometimes marriage vows get watered down to today, but it's a pledge of loyalty, a pledge of faithfulness to this person. But you also see beyond fidelity, there's an exclusivity to that fidelity, isn't there? Because you could be faithful to a lot of different people in similar ways, but there are singular nouns used here, right? Like man, woman, not men or man, women, or man and wives, right? There's singular nouns that are used where there's an exclusivity to marriage. There's one man, one woman. That is the model of the scriptures that is, is from the very beginning. And it's fascinating that Moses uses those singular nouns because he writes the records in Genesis, right? Where you start to see polygamy, Right? Where you start to see a multiplicity of spouses. And he, but he is writing from the beginning that God's creation order is one man, one woman. Uh, that we are to leave our father and mother and hold fast singular in marriage to a husband or wife. Monogamy is the pattern, not polygamy. And I'll just say a word of application on this. is I don't want you to be paranoid if you're a husband or wife and, and think that every person of the opposite sex is some boogeyman to tempt you or to, to bait you into adultery. But I think we would be wise to beware when temptation is starting to rise with a person of the opposite sex. If we start to sense something with a brother or sister in the faith or a coworker or something where we start to receive things from that man or woman that we should be receiving emotionally or connection-wise from a husband or wife, we should be on guard about that with our own hearts. And we should be careful, vigilant, I would say, to keep the trust of our spouse because that can be broken in an instant and it can take a lifetime, if that, to repair and to restore. We need to be on guard and vigilant about showing the, the exclusivity, the exclusivity of our faithfulness to our husband or wife. 
But you see this cleaving further illustrated when he says that they shall become one flesh. That there's to be a bond that develops between this husband and wife. And when he uses this language here, they shall become one flesh, I think he is not, he's saying more than this, but he's not saying less than a description of sexual union between a husband and wife, right? There's even physical language there. There's a, a sexual union that is to be only enjoyed between a husband and a wife, right? I think that's implied in this text, that that is the context in which sexual expression is supposed to take place. And just as a, a word of application on that, if marriage is the context where two are to become one, I think we need to be much more restrained than we are in our culture about sexual relationships prior to marriage. Often we think of, of intimacy and physical intimacy as something that precedes commitment and precedes the bonds or gives me reason to bond myself with this person and pledge myself to them. And the scriptures speak the exact opposite of that. They speak of commitment as the thing, that, the glue that holds you together that enables intimacy, that enables a safe place for you to enjoy this union together. And so sexual union is, is directly said here, but this one flesh union is more than that. It's much more than that. It's not just a pure physical relationship. This oneness is supposed to be something that is a unity, a, a joining of heart and mind and family and resources. That it, It's a merging of of lives together, of two people's lives together. That is what this cleaving is. There's a, it's a mysterious thing that we can't even adequately give words to, but of, of two becoming one. And, impl- and stated here, or implied here at least, in this one flesh union is another facet of marriage that we have just, I think, discarded or thrown by the wayside, and it's the permanence of marriage. Like when he's he's talking about them becoming one flesh, he is talking about, humanly speaking, the most permanent of permanent relationships that we can experience, that we can enjoy, of being a husband, being a wife. And that is not just me reading into this, right? Because you may say, it doesn't really say that, this becoming one flesh, like that could be a temporary thing. Jesus speaks this way. Like you read Matthew 19, Jesus is asked about divorce He's, he's confronted about it, and there's nuances we could add to this about the subject of divorce, but I don't want to say less than what the scriptures do. Jesus himself, when asked about divorce in Matthew 19, this is what, how it's recorded for us. It says that the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, and he's going to go back to this text. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, quote from Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is how Jesus applies it. This is how he interprets this text today. He says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so when you see a pastor at the end of a wedding ceremony hold the hands of that wedding and wife, or that, that husband and wife, uh, and sometimes say this quote, what God's joined together, let man not separate. He, it's not just some old guy wanting to conserve uh, social structures, something he's quoting Jesus. Jesus said this oneness that's enjoyed in marriage is not to be broken, that, that there's a permanence to it that man ought to not separate. There's this deep, profound link between husband and wife. And we have moved in our culture from more traditional vows where we say, till death do us part. This isn't articulated, but often the, the underlying current of what is actually articulated in wedding is things like, 
I pledge these things for as long as our love shall last. Or something like that. Along those lines where we think of, of marriage as just like a glorified form of dating. We don't think of it as a unique permanent bond between a husband and wife. It's a quick word on this because there's much nuance I would like to say but time would not allow about divorce. If you are divorced uh, or you know and love people who are divorced, I, I just want us to be wise about how we think about the subject of divorce. And I'll just leave it at this to make sure we think biblically about divorce, not just intuitively, like in how we think about our own marriage or how we think about the marriages of our friends who are hurting or who are going through hard times. Like be careful about the counsel that we offer to them and make sure that what we are saying to them is not bending them towards the disobedience of the scriptures but a faithfulness toward it. And so as we think about our own life or our, our, our friends' marriages, may we be wise, may we be biblical more than anything about how we think of this subject of divorce. But it's a permanent, it's intended to be a permanent relationship of husband and wife. And the last way we see this cleaving in this text is where he says, I didn't hear any snickers, by the way, from little kids when I read that they were both naked and not ashamed. I was almost expecting some little laughs as I read that in the scriptures. But in verse 25, that when he talks about this nakedness of Adam and Eve and them not being ashamed, I think even in that you see this picture of cleaving, of oneness between the two of them. Right? It's about more than them just not having clothes on. Nakedness, when you see it throughout the scriptures, especially Old Testament as the story unfolds, it, it refers to this, I mean, it actually becomes a very negative word after the fall, like where it starts to mean like being exposed or a, um, like a shameful type of nakedness. But here it's used as a good thing that I think is communicating something about the vulnerability of marriage. That when you truly become one with a person, there is great vulnerability that your spouse has toward you and that you have toward them, right? Because when you become one with them, you start to know everything about each other, right? Like when you just have friends, you get angry or something, you can just drive home, right? Or you can just go away from them or you can leave, like you can just ignore them for days on end. You can even stop being friends with them, right? Marriage, you cannot. Like, you are forced to deal with your own sin. You're forced to deal with their sin. You cannot hide. There is a nakedness more than just physically. There's a nakedness in all ways, an exposure of who we are before our spouse. And that... In the garden, that was not a bad thing. That was a good thing. Sin hadn't entered yet. There was a vulnerability and openness, uh, a fullness of intimacy that they can enjoy. But outside of Eden, outside of the garden, we still enter into this oneness. But now it's with a sinful person. Right? We're sinful. They're sinful. And I would just say, like, we need to be cognizant of the vulnerability our spouse has related toward us and not take advantage of that, not, not view that as some way that I can manipulate them. Your words as a husband or wife carry much more weight with your spouse than anybody else's do. Like, you know ways you can affirm them and build them up, and you know the things that cut them. And you, you know things other people don't know, that you can call back to their mind. We need to be wise how we use this, how we experience this vulnerability in our marriages. I want to leave you with one last uh, word. I said I was going to do two, leave and cleave. I want to add a third, and that's the word perceive. Because I, I think in this text and in the, the institution of marriage, we're not just to leave and cleave, but there's something within the relationship of husband and wife that we're all supposed to see, that we're all supposed to perceive as we think about marriage. And it's something about Jesus and his bride, the church. 
Last week, we, or two weeks ago, I keep saying that wrong. We had a guest speaker last week. So two weeks ago when we were last in Genesis, uh, we saw the creation of the woman and the presentation of her to the man. That was, think of that more like the wedding. But then I think what Moses is talking about here at the end of chapter two is thinking more the marriage, not just the wedding, but the relationship and what it's supposed to teach us, what it's, the effect that it's supposed to have upon us. And in the scriptures, you see that marriage is supposed to paint a picture for us, a God-given picture for us of the relationship of Jesus and the church. And in the text that Heather read earlier this morning, the Apostle Paul made this crystal clear. Now, this is not just me reading Genesis 2 and kind of riffing on it. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he read this text in Genesis 2 about the two becoming one. And then I don't know if you heard it in what she read, but I wanted to reread these two verses at the end of that. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse, Genesis 2.24, and then he says a comment about it. He said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then this is what he said about the two becoming one that we've been reading about this morning in marriage. He said, This mystery is profound. Then hear this. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is the it? The it is the two becoming one. The, this two who were formerly separate now becoming one in this permanent relationship. Paul is saying that, like that thing we see or many of us experience in life of two becoming one, husband and wife becoming one, has, is and always has been something that refers to something even better, that points us to something even deeper and truer, more glorious than just a man and a woman's love. It points us to the love of Christ for his church and the bond that he has created with her, right? Marriage, this, this wonderful gift of God that we're talking about today, marriage is patterned after the relationship of Christ and the church. It's not as if God kind of looked out on the world and thought, hmm, what's like a good What's a good illustration I could use amongst all this stuff that's happening in the world to describe what I'm going to do with Jesus and, and his bride or, and the, the people he's going to save? It's not like he's just kind of looking around the world and thinking, oh, marriage is a great example. That's like close. I'll, I'll pick that and I'll, I'll apply that. What Paul is saying, if I'm understanding it right, is from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, God knew what he was going to do in the sending of Jesus and the putting him to death upon the cross, and then the taking of who were separate, sinners like us, and then uniting us with himself, uniting with the, us with his son. God knew he was going to do all that, right? Taking who were separate and going to unite them. And God gave marriage from the beginning to be a picture of that, right? That there was these people who were initially separate, but by this mysterious, wonderful work of God, he's actually making them one. Right? He did that with Adam and Eve. He does that with every husband and wife throughout history and throughout time and every place on this planet. He still continues to do that. But as we see that take place at weddings or as we see it lived out in marriage, that's to be a sign for us to think about Jesus and his bride because that's precisely what God did at the cross. As he took people who were not just separate but who were enemies of Jesus, Right? And he punished Christ in our place. Jesus was so willing and so desirous to be united with his people that he let himself be crushed. He let himself be punished for our sins upon the cross. Let himself die in our place 
so that we might be reconciled to God. So that we who were enemies, not just separate, but were enemies, might be brought and made one with God. And he has done that in a way that is permanent, right? Like when he restores us to himself, he doesn't just do it temporarily. And he doesn't just do it till death do us part, right? Like he has established a permanent relationship with all of us who are willing to leave our sin and cleave to him in faith, he establishes a permanent, eternal relationship. That's why the permanence of marriage is so important. It's because it's picturing that in Jesus and the church, we have a relationship that will last through the grave, right? Not just to it, but through it. And so marriage has always been from the beginning supposed to be a signpost to Jesus and his bride, to Jesus and his church. And if today you have never place your faith in Christ. You are still two with him. Like you are not one with him. I want you to know today that to every person in this room, to every person in the world who will turn, who will leave our sin and cleave in faith to Jesus, say thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking my place. He can and will make you one today with him. It could be like a glorious wedding day today of him uniting you uh, with his son now and forever. And he is glad to do it. He's not a begrudging husband uh, who's just kind of taking on. He is glad to receive people to himself. So as we contemplate the subject of marriage, we kind of, we should take a pathway back to Eden, right? To see God's creation order. It's a pattern to be followed. But God wouldn't want us to stop at Eden in our contemplation of marriage. He would want us to continue on the path to Calvary, right? And see, there we see the truest expression of marriage, of a husband dying for his bride, dying for his bride so that she might be reconciled to him once and for all. Very last thing I'm going to say, I promise, and then we'll sing. I love the book, The Meaning of Marriage, by Pastor Tim Keller, who passed away somewhat recently. He said something in that book that has just stuck with me. He, he talked about how often, especially if we've grown up in a family that reveres marriage, a church that reveres marriage, sometimes we can think of marriage as the ultimate human relationship. That we maybe even sometimes start to idolize it. We think, that is it. Like, I want that. I have to have that if I'm going to be a whole person. And he said that if we truly understand Ephesians 5, and if we understand what God was trying to do in giving us the picture of marriage, we will know marriage is not the ultimate relationship. He said that it is the penultimate relationship. That means it's second. It's close, it's, but it's not the thing. It's not the most glorious relationship that we can be part of. To have a husband or wife is a wonderful gift of God, but it is a, a wife or husband and a marriage itself is to point you to the ultimate relationship, right, of Jesus and his church that we all can be part of, single and married alike, divorced, widowed. All of us can be part of that relationship with God now and forever that that relationship is ultimate and so may we not idolize our marriages or our spouses right may we love them may we serve them but may we treasure the fact that we get that ultimate relationship with jesus christ and so may we follow this pattern that we see in genesis because much is at stake right it's a picture of jesus and his church